Is it possible that patriotism could be chaotic? Or what does it mean when our actions, our policies, catch up with our language? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor-theologian. You can find us at pathological.com, pathological.net, or toddlittleton.net. We're the podcast that explores the intersection of life and faith and the practice or habits of pastoral work. That could be a pastor. It could be a lay person involved in the life of their church who is interested in the care of others or in the old traditional sense in the care of souls. We are looking beyond the pragmatic. We are doing what my seminary professor's years ago used to describe as learning to think theologically. So it is uh, customary that in uh, education, uh, and especially in uh, conferences, that uh, pastoral uh, conferences tend to be uh, pragmatic. That is how to increase your attendance, how to increase your baptisms. It's a, it's a pragmatic thing. It's not to say it's not rooted in particular uh, theological uh, positioning, uh, but that the, the life of the pastor and the issues faced in human life uh, take on much deeper issues than trying to find uh, the best way to do something. Sometimes we need to think much uh, deeper than that. So that's what we're aiming to do, and uh, the way in which I try to draw that out is to uh, share conversations with friends of mine. I'm particularly interested in uh, young voices, those who may or may not be published. If they are, it's not been long, not been much. And if you've ever been in conversation with someone who's written a book, then you're well aware that uh, it, it is a, uh, I understand it's like giving birth and then nobody appreciates your baby. And so uh, I found some of these folks to have some great things to say. They've helped me, influenced me, challenged me. Uh, opened up my sensibilities and give some opportunity for refreshing uh, thoughts and ideas as I continue to do the work here in in my setting. And that setting is uh, having been pastor at uh, my local church for the past 22 years, been involved in pastoring and or staff work for about 30 years. And so uh, I have a mantra, leaders are always learners, and this is one of the ways that uh, I continue to learn myself, and I'm actually inviting my audience to learn with me. So it really would be helpful and important that if you find any of these podcasts uh, uh, spurring some thoughts or you provoke some conversations, that you can engage in the uh, comments on the blog post that um, uh, announce these particular podcasts. Uh, you could always email me at uh, doc period, Todd at gmail.com. And I'd love to uh, carry on. And, and maybe you have a suggestion for an interview. Maybe there's someone that you think would be worthwhile to get on and have this particular conversation. I don't want to limit to young people. I've, I've uh, interviewed uh, my mentor, Rick Davis. I've interviewed David Fitch. Uh, both of those gentlemen are uh, f- uh, some years older than I am, and I think have had a lot to say and both have influenced me. I'm Looking forward to some other interviews along those lines coming up. And so uh, one of the ways that you get to help out is uh, sharing the podcast. So you could share it uh, by 
by email. You could uh, share it by text. You could uh, share it by word of mouth. Uh, you could subscribe uh, in iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher. It, it would be really uh, helpful if you'd leave a review. Uh, ratings are great, but reviews are better. And so if you were to log into iTunes and leave uh, a review, it doesn't have to be terribly lengthy. But if if you would leave one, it'd be helpful. Don't be discouraged if it doesn't show up immediately. Those uh, f- have to filter through the interwebs, probably also being approved by uh, Apple. And so sometimes it can take 24 hours or so to uh, have your review show up. And uh, while I'm at kind of re-describing what we're doing here, uh, I, I would tell you that uh, um, a friend of mine, uh, Marty Duran, and I, uh, along with David Phillips, initiated uh, the Roundtable Media Group. Uh, we're looking to try to put together a, a consortium, if you will, or, or a, a network of uh, podcasters who are interested in uh, the, the Christian tradition and life in a variety of angles and ways. And so you could visit roundtablemediagroup.com and you could find uh, our affiliate podcast and then podcasts that we produce. And uh, Marty uh, really had uh, this idea some years ago, uh, and his blog is The Fourth Estate, and that's also his podcast, and I encourage you to subscribe there. Uh, Marty does a really good job of trying to get underneath headlines uh, really interested in exploring issues. And if he uh, could find a way, he would like to um, uh, be involved in the kind of journalism that um, is uh, and has been characterized as the, the needed fourth estate in our country. And uh, I'll at the end, I'll, I'll uh, highlight another podcast or two with Roundtable Media Group and let you know that if you're interested in starting a podcast, we'd love to help you out. Uh, We could help you learn from our mistakes. We could help you learn how to get set up, how to get your message out, and uh, and some of those uh, particular logistical things. We'd love to help you. So you could email me at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. And if you would like to advertise, uh, we could uh, work up uh, an opportunity for you to advertise across uh, our podcast. We could let you know what our traffic looks like, and and, uh, we could uh, ensure that that uh, your product, your uh, blog, your website, your whatever it is you'd like to uh, advertise could uh, be included uh, again across uh, our podcast episodes here with uh, Roundtable Media Group. Uh, It's a little out of the ordinary for me to do a lot of housekeeping and uh, announcement making, but I haven't done that in in some time. And it it lets me kind of uh, get... uh, uh, rejuvenated about the the project of Pathological that was really a redesign of uh, my, an original podcast that really was uh, aimed at my uh, Baptist, Southern Baptist, evangelical friends who uh, might be dabbling with the Revised Common Lectionary, where I'd take the four texts uh, of a given Sunday and mash them up a little bit and point to the ways in which they are in conversation or could possibly be in conversation with one another. And then uh, rethought that in the, in the fall of last year and then relaunched at the end of December, Pathological. And it's a mashup of uh, pastor and theological, and, and it was a, a result of a, a contest 
that I held, and and it was a great suggestion by one of the listeners. And uh, so we'll we'll try to put some uh, uh, oh some giveaways and those sorts of things uh, in the future. Got some uh, uh, books, maybe uh, some other resources as we continue to try to build out what kind of a resource uh, this podcast could be for uh, the pastor theologian. And um, one reason I needed a, a little bit of excitement, I'm, I'm suffering a, a bit of disappointment. Uh, I've I've been on the phone twice with George Young Sr. Uh, George is currently uh, representative in the uh, State House in Oklahoma, and both times I had technological uh, problems. Uh, I actually thought maybe the first time it was just um, operator error that I failed to hit the record button, uh, but I was on the phone with George earlier this week and hit the record button, kept the record button on even after we ch- changed phone lines and discovered that uh, I'm have, I had a... Uh, uh, memory card problem with uh, my little recorder. And so I've changed that and swapped that out. But uh, no matter what I did, uh, no matter how hard I tried, I could not recover that file. In fact, uh, my IT friend tells me then he thinks it never recorded. So it, that'd be twice that I've talked with George and had great stuff. And so I thought about just um, out of embarrassment calling again, but we're lined up to do that here after November for some obvious reasons. After the election, there's some state questions in Oklahoma that, that uh, he and I have talked about and I'm interested in, and so we're going we're gonna to talk after November. Um, so what I, I thought I would do is I thought I'd just um, retrace our conversation, and uh, that sounds a bit boring, but I'm going to do really what I have uh, been using as a guide since March, and that is in, in March I uh, heard uh, Dr. Barbara Holmes uh, talk about the issue of race from a theological perspective, from a woman's perspective, and um, from someone who lived out uh, that experience. And uh, it opened up uh, for questions at that particular event, and a gentleman sitting next to me uh, said, I need you to come talk to my people. And it was, a, it was a sincere, genuine gesture to say, these stories you're telling would be pretty powerful, would capture the imagination of my Anglo congregation, and maybe we could help uh, plan and, and strategize how to uh, continue uh, what's been started. And so I need to quickly insert that that nobody thinks that um, we are not in a better place in in race relations or with the issue of racism in the United States. But sometimes uh, we have the mistaken idea that uh, everything's now taken care of, that there's no problem. And if there's anything that the events of the last six months have exposed us to is uh, that was a bit of a wish dream. It, it was a bit of a racism went behind closed doors or it went underground, as my friend Adam Clark describes it. And um, so we may not have overt racism, but we are still battling some structures, 
systems, laws, and policies that were originally enacted with uh, uh, their ideology rooted in, in racism. And so uh, when Dr. Barbara Holmes fielded that question, her response was, you need to tell your people. So one of the things I did was I got on and interviewed Adam Clark. Uh, I'll post a link to that interview in the notes of, of this particular podcast, and you can go back and listen if you haven't. And um, it was my way of saying, okay, I'm going to engage some people I know or some friends I recently met, as, as in Adam's case, and we're going to talk about these subjects, and I'm going to open up myself to thinking about it in ways that I had not. And so um, that's one reason I reached out to uh, George uh, Young and wanted to get him on the phone. And uh, great conversations, because I want to talk about the uh, experience uh, of, of racism in Oklahoma, and, and uh, in particular— and uh, wanted to get his take. There have been a couple of things recently in the news, a couple of things that have been going on, and I, I really wanted to uh, be sure that um, we, we, didn't, we didn't miss uh, the import of what goes on in uh, my home state uh, and you know, without thinking about it in, in, in those particular ways uh, and only kind of talk about it on uh, a national scene or a national scope. So uh, I, I want to tell you a little bit about George. I'll give you a little background, and then I'll kind of talk, tell you a little bit about what we talked about. And so in this particular way, I'm telling my people. Um, so I'm telling my people without the uh, medium of an interview, I'm going to just tell my people. I met George uh, a number of years ago. We both were contacted by the Oklahoma Education Association, who at the time was... was uh, headed by Dottie Hager, and she was trying to get a group of clergy together to plan an educator clergy's conference, and that would be educator clergy conference. Um, and her goal and her aim was to talk about what um, sort of relationship could be forged under, um, you know, the law without, you know, in, inviting ministers in to um, proselytize and those sorts of things, but to point out that uh, there needs to be uh, a relationship between the clergy and educators, that uh, we ought to be uh, mutually supporting one another, ought to be mutually encouraging one another, and then provide some resources. Uh, I don't know about your state, but there have been some times, and this is one of them we're in again, where uh, state funding for education has has been uh, stripped for a variety of reasons, been cut, and um, so rather than only talk about the need to make policy adjustments and whatever else might uh, ensure uh, better support for public education, it was also uh, a way to talk about how churches and clergy could be involved to help maybe with the gap that was created. And so there were a number of uh, things. I think we put on uh, three, I believe it was three different uh, conferences, and George and I met one another and worked with one another on the steering committee for uh, those events. And at the time, George was pastor of the Holy Temple Baptist Church in uh, northeast Oklahoma City. And George uh, served as pastor there for 15 years, and then he retired and won uh, the house seat for his district. And um, I've been following uh, George and, and uh, keeping up with him. 
And this provided uh, another medium since those particular conferences kind of um, t- took a back seat to other uh, uh, other things that the OAA was doing and and such. And so um, G- George is really right now involved in uh, a number of projects, a number of things. Some of them uh, originated out of his work in his district for 15 years and then saw uh, opportunity to influence uh, policymakers. And uh, I think he was active even before uh, becoming a state representative. He's active at the White House. Uh, I don't know exactly uh, if if he worked for any particular lobby or he just happened to be there. And I'll talk about some of the things that George was involved in that helped kind of shape uh, the, the two state questions that he's really um, interested in seeing uh, passed. Uh, they relate to uh, justice reform. And, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but first, uh, one thing that, that uh, I wanted to to point out and and talk about that uh, intrigued me was that recently George was invited to speak uh, on, I believe it was on Labor Day uh, or around around Labor Day, uh, and it was uh, a Patriots Day, and uh, uh, seems seems pretty pretty important, especially when you think uh, about the uh, recent um, protest action of uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, the idea of patriotism and the flag and allegiance and such really took center stage. So uh, I talked to George about uh, speaking at Dove uh, School and um, he had uh, put on Facebook a, a really uh, brief uh, description of what he had done. I'm going to read that, and then and then we really took off on uh, the highlighted uh, quote at the end. Uh, he said he spoke uh, today. That would have been Friday, actually, uh, uh, last week, uh, for their Patriots Day. Shared with them that patriotism is more than allegiance to a nation. It is allegiance to the people. He said he used the first sentence of the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence as his premise. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, all people, are created equal. Uh, Number one, truth. Number two, self-evident. And number three, equal. And then he said, we still have work to do, but we have made progress. Patriotism without allegiance to the people is chaos. So I probably need to really kind of set a little bit of the stage. In my two conversations with George, George is really optimistic. And he's optimistic having grown up in Memphis and then spent a number of years before coming to Oklahoma in one of the only two all-black towns in Oklahoma, in Boley, Oklahoma. And and so he has actually witnessed... Uh, he's in his early 60s. He's actually witnessed the progress that's been made. And so he never uh, ignores that things are better than they used to be. Uh, but he also is well aware of uh, how things need to progress. And so in this talk, uh, we talked about kind of what was on his mind, and George communicated that. What he was really aiming for was that that uh, 
nation can become an idea or an ideal, and so allegiance to an idea or an ideal uh, can uh, really take people out of the equation. And, um, and, and so what, what can happen is in the name of patriotism or allegiance to a country, uh, people can fail to be treated uh, in those self-evident ways, and one of them, of course, being equal. Now, we talked together about the, the fact that um, what was penned in uh, that uh, Declaration of Independence when we read that line, all men, even back then, it wasn't just a discriminatory uh, phrase. It was uh, land-holding white men. So it, while there was a time in our country where uh, black people were not considered fully human, uh, that particular statement in its creation was talking about a group of people who got together and penned that statement. And, it, and while in, in the language appears that it uh, acknowledges that all people are created equal, I'm reminded of, of Leslie Newbigin's, uh a little history lesson where he points out that uh, in some of the earliest um, um, uh, formulations uh, as to what the aims or hopes of the nation was for its people, uh, that they could pursue life, liberty, and um, happiness, uh, he remarked that there are, there's evidence that it was originally life, liberty, and property until it was re- realized that that would mean that everyone could and maybe should own property. And as such, uh, there is always an elitist bent that some deserve property more than others. And when you start thinking about property and owning property and having your own, now Oklahoma is... Uh, is the place of the, the land run, and, and Sooners actually references those who uh, snuck in ahead of the appointed time in order to uh, stake their homestead claims early. And, and so uh, you can see that the desire has always been to own land. So um, when that shift was made, it was made to... Um, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, surely by now you know happiness can in some sense be elusive and an illusion uh, if it happens to be the only goal that you have. Uh, happiness takes a, a, a certain internal uh, criterion that has to be developed as to what makes someone happy. And um, at some point in time, I think we probably have to recognize that happiness has to be a choice that's brought in line with the criterion I've selected, and I'm going to be happy with that. Uh, that may be an oversimplification. Uh, I could get my therapist friend in, and we could talk a little bit more about that. But I think that would kind of paint the picture. So when George and I were talking about his presentation at Dove, he was emphasizing the fact that, that we can't uh, 
ignore people, and that's all people. George wasn't just interested in those who were black who still may be suffering from inequities as a result of uh, maybe policy or um, practice. Uh, he's, he's been involved deeply with issues of poverty and addiction. And so th- there are always uh, instances where we have to remember that while we are a nation, we're a nation of people. And that was his aim to say that patriotism uh, without allegiance to the people is chaos. So he's, he's really making a play on words that we, we really probably need a, a pledge to the people uh, as we help to uh, improve and make progress in our nation. I thought that was pretty important, especially in light of the fact that one of the, the reasons for our conversation is uh, state questions 780 and 781 here in Oklahoma, and uh, it largely centers on uh, justice reform. It is, uh, uh, in short, uh, a proposal to um, reclassify uh, certain nonviolent offenses as not felonies. And as such, uh, aim to take the uh, dollars that are used to incarcerate one person over the course of 12 months and reduce that amount, but take the money for those who are convicted of now what would be misdemeanors, but also find ways to help them if if it's learned that they uh, are battling addiction, uh, help them if there is some other a tool or skill that's missing uh, could be job training. Um, these circumstances that we find, at least the statistics in Oklahoma, indicate that there are factors that contribute to these actions. It'd be too easy just simply say, well, it's a dumb choice. Uh, but when I went to a town hall meeting a few weeks ago, about 780 and 71, uh, 781 at uh, the OCU Law Library, uh, where... Or at, actually is the OCU Law School building in their auditorium, um, there was a young lady who was participating in Remerge, and, and it uh, is a program uh, that would take someone and it would be kind of an alternate sentencing, if you will. And so uh, an agreement to avoid uh, time would be to enter the program, and then she was accepted into the program, and, and when she relayed her story, uh, as, as a teenager, she didn't want to be like her mother who had been trapped in addiction, but she found herself uh, not many years later also trapped in addiction. And she said she needed some help with the skills and tools uh, with life. And she's got a great story, uh, been uh, what we call clean, which, you know, means uh, um, uh, still... In, a, in, a, in, a, in the terms of addiction, still an addict. Often they refer to themselves as recovering, but she's been clean, sober, if you will, for a period of time. She's uh, earned uh, some uh, either certificates or degrees, I can't remember exactly which, uh, is, is employed, uh, taking care of her child. Is it just a fascinating and tremendous story? And George uh, told me in our conversation that there's a program like it in Tulsa. Uh, and the, the program in Tulsa is actually having uh, a significant uh, impact 
such that in uh, comparisons of female incarceration, it's actually down in Tulsa County, but not in Oklahoma County. So he's really interested in to try to find out, okay, so what's what could possibly be missing in the program in Oklahoma that we could learn from the program in Tulsa? Because in Oklahoma, uh, we have the, the highest uh, incarceration rate uh, among women. And uh, it's not like Oklahoma in its uh, 3.3 or 3.4 million uh, overall population that that's uh, 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 the largest percentage is women, and that sets it over against, say, the state of Texas. So just in sheer land mass and size, uh, the Dallas-Fort Dallas-Fort Worth metro area is multiples times larger than the state of Oklahoma. Uh, so hopefully you get the math, and uh, and and so that's one of the the areas where this uh, uh, justice reform is targeting, because uh, it's also uh, been pointed out that seventy uh, percent of the children of women who are incarcerated will themselves find themselves in the the uh, uh, the system, uh, one form or another, whether that be in uh, uh, custodial care in DHS or two in the in the prison system as a consequence of um, the absence of the mother. And so in this reclassification, uh, it will take nonviolent offenses and um, uh, it, it will give some opportunity. The savings could be one of the places where money could be diverted from incarcerating to educating, and so uh, uh, what I what I want to clarify is, is is that means that it's actually cheaper per year to help with addiction and do job training than it is to car- incarcerate. The difference in those two amounts uh, times the number of individuals could be money allocated uh, back into public education. And uh, that's something we desperately need here in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, our incarceration rates in Oklahoma are we are at 122% capacity, and we could probably trail off uh, on the whole prison industrial complex and um, for-profit prisons and, and some of the I- impact that that's had on uh, policy and enforcement and sentencing and such. And so George and I were talking about uh, those those connecting points to where we continue we need to continue to make progress. So we're making progress not in just the issue of race, but when it comes to addiction and poverty. And there are things that we need to be uh, considering and putting into place as as we uh, uh, try to engage the system that um, can ensnare and trap people in its clutches. And, and so um, when we pledge allegiance to people, uh, we, are, we are now actually taking a step toward uh, participating with them. And so when, when I think about it, I, one of the things George and I talked about was is, is that a, a lot of people get really um, animated when I hear these, these, these really great stories uh, of, of, say, recovery from addiction or turning your life around from a, a, a generational uh, captivity, if you will, to a particular way of life and uh, that, that has led to poverty and, and all sorts of other um, uh, 
unhealthy and not whole sorts of human experience. And so what we talked about was uh, that uh, these, uh, this engagement that George has been involved in uh, stemmed from his years pastoring in his district, where he uh, obviously counseled people, but he, came in, he became involved in the drug court. It's one of the other ways in which uh, someone might uh, either lessen or avoid their time spent actually in jail. And he told, he told a great story at that town hall meeting uh, about, a, about a fellow. And then on the, fo- on the phone, on the interview that uh, obviously we don't have, he told a story about a young lady. And in both instances, uh, they developed out of uh, his participation in, in the drug court. So he didn't sit in his study. He didn't sit behind his desk uh, with his Bible open and simply theorize about, you know, what to do and how to, how to help uh, change lives of, of people who were trapped and ensnared. I- instead, he went and did something about it. And, and that's what I mean by uh, some people treat it as theoretical. And I think there is a term that's used for uh, online activism called slacktivism. So I can share a post and think I've, I've raised awareness or I've done, done a thing. And um, the, the, the realities are that in, in order to make the progress or to continue the progress that George identified, in, for instance, uh, in, with regard to race issues in our country, is going to require more than theory. It's going to require more than just reading articles. It's going to require uh, a, a sense of solidarity with or participation with the people. So that goes back to his theme of, of pledging allegiance to people. And when we pledge allegiance to a country without pledging allegiance to people, he, says he believes that turns into uh, chaos. And I think maybe one of the only other things I want to cover before we, we sign off and, and uh, just let you know that we're going to have George on in November again. And this time we'll have all the technology checked out and know that we're actually getting a good recording. Is that um, one of the things that sometimes happens when we start talking uh, about race, especially from uh, the perspective of, of uh, white people, um, we two things. One, we, we, we hold statistics in suspicion. And so, for instance, when the, the uh, uh, shootings uh, that involved law enforcement officers came out, uh, it, people were quick to talk about, well, more, more whites were killed. Uh, but that's one of those things where we're not comparing apples to apples in terms of percentage of population. So in Oklahoma, for instance, um, the incarceration rate, according to George, was it that uh, forty percent? He was told he was low, but forty percent of the uh, inmate population in the state of Oklahoma is uh, African American, whereas the overall African American population in the state of Oklahoma doesn't reach ten percent. So when you start weighing out that that there's a glaring um, discrepancy there, and and it's like George said that that. that uh, he mem- remembered growing up, and uh, the villains in the stories, television and otherwise, were black. And and so uh, we've we've kind of subtly been infused with the idea that well, the reason more blacks are incarcerated than whites is they're just worse people, and that's just not true. Uh, that that's that's actually lazy, and. Uh, there are other things, but it would be inappropriate for uh, a minister probably to uh, say online and, and maintain his clean rating. 
Um, and so when, when George and I were talking about that, we, we were talking about the way statistics kind of get tossed around. And when you, when you can talk about a statistic in terms of an incarceration rate, that's not something that someone can make up. Those are verifiable. And so our statistics that we use ought to be ones that can be verified because we all know that uh, statistics can be and often are manipulated. For instance, if you uh, caught the recent story out about uh, sugar, uh, it seems that in the 1960s, uh, those who were producing uh, sugar wanted to hide the fact that sugar had a, a, a role to play in heart disease, uh, but because of money, a report came out that it was more uh, a problem with saturated fats than it was sugar. So now here we are 40-some years, almost 50 years later, and we're learning that, that maybe someone influenced that. Well, but when we're talking about incarceration rates, those are verifiable numbers. When we're talking about population, those are verifiable numbers. So when you put those two together, you, you, you have to dig a little bit deeper and think, well, what's behind it? Why is that? And so George and I talked about you know, laws. We didn't go into it, but you could do a little study and find out about um, uh, even some of the things that became felonies in the South, for instance because they didn't want black people voting. And so they chose things that, that uh, they, didn't, they didn't like, that they knew that black people would participate in at a higher rate and degree. I, I don't have any specifics, but my friend Alan uh, Cross, who wrote a book, uh, When Heaven and Earth Collide, about uh, uh, Southern American Christianity, his research clearly indicated that this was the case when it came to uh, past laws, that it was a way to keep... Uh, black people who had won the right to vote from voting. And so, you know, that's those are the sorts of things that, that we have to really pay attention to because then we don't understand the ways that those get driven into the system. And I think that's the hardest part. That would be the second thing. The hardest part that, that white people um, have, I think, uh, and I'm, I'm guilty, is, is that we, we tend to think uh, individually. And so our, uh, our inherited position in the United States is generally uh, uh, rugged individualism. And so when we play to the individual, we don't always think groupthink. We were never a, a group that was uh, oppressed in this country. And so as a consequence, we have entirely different roles. So when we talk about the black experience, black people can identify as a group, a group of people who, because of their skin, were treated differently. And so what happens sometimes is we're talking past each other because a, a white person will say, well, that's not been my experience. Well, of course it's not been your experience. Uh, and you can even say that I know uh, a black person here or there and it's not been their experience. But the collective experience that has influenced uh, laws and history, uh, they, ha they don't go away in 50 years when, when, when they were wired into the foundational documents and the social practices of our country. Uh, we're relatively young, and George pointed that out, and so we've made good progress for such a young country, but more needs to be made. So uh, I, th that pretty well, uh, I think, gets to uh, my conversation with George Young, Sr., uh, who's uh, in the House of Representatives in the state of Oklahoma for his district in the northeast side of Oklahoma City. And uh, uh, and so uh, maybe that'll give you some things to think about. And, and again, I hope you receive this as uh, in, in the spirit that uh, I aimed for 
And that is that um, when Dr. Holmes said, you need to tell your people, it's we do. And if we can tell that story, then maybe we can open up to better dialogue and conversation. I think one of the things that, that those I talk to fear is, 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 is it's this uh, sort of idea of inherited guilt and, and, uh, or, or I didn't do any of that. And, and that's absolutely correct. But uh, our forefathers did those things that uh, drilled these, uh, the seeds deep that that have blossomed into these other systems that provide reports like out of the uh, out of Baltimore Police Department or the St. Louis Police Department, for instance, or, or uh, uh, some economic policies, for instance. Uh, and so that's to tip my hat to my conversation will be next up, and that will be with uh, Jonathan or Johnny Russell, who's a chaplain of Skid Row in L.A. And we talk about this a little bit when we talk about uh, homelessness, poverty, and post-incarceration uh, experience, and and so from from the vantage, vantage point of a Christian and, and a pastor's, it's really helpful that that we look a little bit deeper to see are there ways in which the things that we do or the way we talk about faith or the story of Jesus uh, contribute to things as they are. I, I like to uh, use that political theory uh, line as is, because it, if if the gospel liberates in any way, then it has to challenge things as they are. And so when we'll take the time to listen to another's perspective, another context, then uh, we'll be uh, better for it, and we'll be enabled to see how we might uh, correct some of the problems. So I'm glad that there's a great deal of diversity uh, of those uh, proponents behind State Questions 780 and 781 uh, here in, in Oklahoma. And uh, um, it just brought to mind that just as as way of illustration, uh, when our governor appointed a justice reform task force of 17 people, not not one African-American person was on that task force. Now, here's the problem with that. If you've got 40 percent of the prison population in Oklahoma are black, why don't we need to hear from those who are living that experience to find out what would be helpful in reforming the system. The outcry was pretty big. George actually was one who was interviewed about that, and within a couple of days, uh, there were two African Americans added to that task force. And I say, yay, George. But see, that just clearly illustrates that how is it possible uh, that, that somebody on the governor's staff or the governor herself who's certainly aware of the justice issues. She's certainly aware of these two, t- two state questions and all the statistics that are being uh, banded around uh, related to incarceration rates, et cetera. Uh, how is it someone missed that? Well, they missed that because it just we, it, we just don't think about it. And so sometimes when we raise these issues, it forces us to think about some things we don't normally think about. Sometimes we don't want to think about them. We want it to be better than it is. And uh, uh, as, a, as an internal optimist, I always want it to be better than it is. But when I listen to stories uh, from Barbara and from Adam and, and from uh, George, I realize while we've made progress, we still have some work to do and ways to go. So uh, uh, I hope uh, I want to thank George publicly. Uh, I'll let him know uh, what happened, and hopefully he'll have a chance to listen, and if I've uh, omitted or uh, wasn't clear about something he wanted to communicate, then we'll 
have a follow-up when he and I get on the phone in November after the election. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, again, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Remember, uh, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcatcher. Leave us a, a, a review and a rating. And uh, again, if you're interested in podcasting, if you'd like to advertise across Roundtable Media Group uh, uh, affiliate podcasts and produce the podcast, uh, email me at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. We'll get you helped out. I, I mentioned Alan Cross, uh, When Heaven and Earth Collide. If you're really interested in issues of uh, racial justice uh, and immigration, uh, you really need to subscribe to Alan's uh, podcast. In fact, I'd encourage you to pick up his book, When Heaven and Earth Collide. Uh, he's working, I believe, on a sequel. It took him two or three years. Great research. Um, uh, formerly pastored in um, Alabama and now works for the uh, Evangelical Immigration Table and a couple of other uh, nonprofits to promote uh, a good sound policy uh, with regard to racism and immigration in the United States. He's uh, been involved in uh, the legislation that was um, in play in South Carolina. He's been involved in local groups uh, throughout uh, the Montgomery area. And you can subscribe to When Heaven and Earth Collide. You could check his website at Alan uh, Cross Writes, maybe Alan R. Cross Writes. Uh, I can't recall exactly, but uh, you, you could look that up. And uh, or just uh, Google when heaven and earth collide. I'll, I'll, I'll remember to have those in the notes. And uh, then we'll highlight uh, uh, the other uh, God's Revolution and um, Phil and Ryan's conversation rules. We'll give a little more about them uh, maybe next time. So, again, uh, as always, I want to thank you for listening. And until next time, peace. <laughs>